Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. On today's show, we're taking a big step back into the bookish past. Uh, the State Library of Victoria turns 165 years old this year, making it this country's oldest public library, a place where, despite its grand edifice, people who lacked the money to gather books would have access to all a library provides. State Library CEO Kate Tawney joins me later in the hour to talk about the library as it was, as it is, and as it will be in a post-pandemic world. But soon, author Craig Munro sifts through a 100 years of local literary history from the 1890s to the 1990s to write the lives of editors well-known in literary circles but who have been eclipsed in the public mind by the authors they worked with. Behind the scenes, though, is the story of complex, sometimes extremely controversial characters who shaped renowned literary works for good or ill. Craig Munro joins me very soon. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Editor A.G. Stevens helped Joseph Furphy's Such in Life to publishing success, but might have edited out its centre of gravity. Publisher P.R. Stevenson famously battled Xavier Herbert to get Capricornia into shape, but also fought against censoring D.H. Lawrence's Lady Chatterley's Lover and joined calls for an Aboriginal day of mourning and protest on the 26th of January 1938 before becoming a notorious right-wing sympathiser. Beatrice Davis pulled no punches in her proposed edit of what would become Xavier Herbert's Soldiers' Women, telling him she was appalled by its squalor and that he should chop her out about half of that manuscript. And Roseanne Fitzgibbon got behind her authors, supporting the career of many, including the wonderful Gillian Mears. The stories of these publishers and editors are all covered in the staggeringly researched literary lion tamers, book editors who made publishing history. And author Craig Munro joins me now. Craig, welcome to Backstory. Hello, are you there with me, Craig? Just having a little difficulty hearing you. Hello. Hello. I think we finally got you through there, Craig. Uh, Great. Hallelujah. Look, we managed it. Um, Now, look, people don't often hear the stories of those who toil behind the scenes. And I know, of course, you yourself were were an editor for many years at University of Queensland Press or UQP. Um, And, you know... You do such an incredible job in this book of dragging these incredibly complex and at times controversial characters into the light. But something you do, and we did talk about this a little bit off air, uh, and it was something that I was going to bring up with you anyway, is that you also really show just how much work some of their partners did, both the partners of authors and also editors actually did behind the scenes. And that's sort of something that continues to this day, isn't it really, Craig? It isn't. It's something that's not often uh, 
talked about or, or written about. Um, and the first author I, I, I talk about in any detail is Steele Rudd, uh, whose famous bestseller on our selection was published uh, in the late 19th century. And his book was edited by A.G. Stevens, uh, but before Stevens uh, worked on it, uh, Rudd's wife, Teen, she used to read all of the stories in draft uh, before he finalised them. And in fact, they were childhood sweethearts. They'd both been at primary school together. Yeah, you do wonder as well, like what, I mean, because this is obviously, this is unpaid work and unaggrandized work. I, I guess uh, in his in his time, Stevens was a quite well-known character, um, but increasingly, I guess, a lot of people don't know those who, who actually edit behind the scenes. And the fact that, I guess, in these circumstances, there are certainly um, particularly women um, who did a lot of work that weren't recognised. You've managed to unearth some incredible stories in here. I have to say... Um, there's two things I want to bring up with you before we get stuck into the stories. And the first one is, how the hell did you squeeze it all into a single book? Because this is really an example of some serious editing going on uh, just to fit all these, this research into a single book. Well, I hope it, it reads as one narrative that, that pulls these various uh, threads together and they matches the editors with their sometimes uh, very difficult authors. Yeah, it does it really nicely. You sort of handball um, the stories of the authors um, in as using that as a kind of narrative structure to, to bring in the editors or even the relationships between the various editors as that kind of narrative moves along. But obviously this is an example of really fine editing work as well. So I am wondering about the process that you went through to take what I can only imagine was an enormous body of research work and then to both yourself and obviously working with your own editor at Scribe. How was that process of actually creating the narrative? Well, I was very fortunate with this book, which was edited by Kevin O'Brien and with my publishing uh, memoir of a few years ago, Undercover, and that was edited by Julie uh, Calamagno. Um, and I've found that the relationships between these editors and their own partners uh, is, is also interesting, but uh, some of the editors, their own stories are interesting, and I've, I've tried to bring that out using quite a lot of primary research in, in libraries, uh, in New South Wales, in Queensland, and in Victoria, as well as uh, libraries in the US and UK. Yeah. Look, it's a really, um, I, there's just so much packed into this that I really um, am trying to work out where to start. But I think that one of the cent central characters in this, and you're covering, to put it in context, a hundred years of, uh, you know, of history of editors and, and you've picked a few key editors to kind of carry the narrative uh, forward. Uh, but actually, this, the publisher and editor, P.R. Stevenson, is 
is really one of the most bizarre characters in this whole book. Uh, he was famous, obviously, uh, not obviously, but people may know. He was certainly famous for working with uh, Xavier Herbert, who wrote Capricornia, which has been considered, um, you know, a very famous book in Australia. But he was also involved with D.H. Lawrence. And apparently, I think you talk about him putting out maybe a, a sort of black market edition <laughs> before the censorship was lifted. Um, but he also was an extremely, you know, um, he was a bit of a left-wing firebrand, fought for a lot of causes on that front, uh, and then flipped and turned into a, uh, you know, a right-wing, some might say, Nazi sympathiser uh, and then was called to account for that um, in actual court cases. This this character is so bizarre. What will you... <laughs> talk to me about Stevenson. Well, my... I really didn't know anything about Stevenson, even though I'd, I'd worked as a literary researcher and as an editor for several years. But I had my own encounter with Xavier Herbert when I was the first person to read his massive 950,000-word novel, Poor Fellow, My Country, uh, which was his his last novel. And I was the first person to read this in manuscript, and he loved getting telegrams. So he said, send me a telegram uh, when you've finished reading it. And... I'd read it over three weeks, um, mostly in bed with a bad dose of the flu and a, and also a big dose of Xavier Herbert. So when I um, sent him a letter suggesting that it might need some changes, he he just didn't write back. And it was only then that I realised he'd had this five-year-long battle with P.R. Stevenson to get Capricornia published. Yeah, it's so interesting to sort of see these behind-the-scenes, um, you know, and you've, you've obviously gone to talk to uh, family members who are surviving, um, to talk to them about their experiences of the people that you're portraying here. You've pulled no punches in showing uh, all of their foibles as well as their positive traits. Um, you know, you certainly get some... Uh, some quite, uh, you know, under the skin of, for example, A.G. Stevens and his creepy views about one of his co-workers. Um, so you're not letting them off the hook on any front. And I think also, you know, really getting under the skin of the back and forth between the editors and the writers. And there's one particularly great, um, you know, uh, bit here, which is talking about Beatrice Davis, who is a an editor that was also working with the infamous Xavier Herbert uh, on his book uh, that became Soldiers Women, and she wrote, and I'm going to quote um, from you know from your book here. Uh, she said, frankly, I was appalled by the squalor of your story. Um, she was shocked by the sordid drunken scenes, the, revolting, the revolting fornication, made so, of course, by the terrible power of your disgust. Um, and she also said that it should be cut from 34,000 words to 120,000 words. And uh, the wounded Herbert then hit back by saying she was a woman and just should um, succumb to his masculine power. Uh, it was just one of the... I mean, she, she managed to come back at him to um, 
you know, to get some, uh, you know, her own sort of recharacterization of it once she'd sort of gotten over him being such an idiot. Um, but I, I really found that such an interesting exchange um, and, you know, really giving some insight into the background. And, of course, I think uh, he did ultimately do what she suggested because they were good suggestions. That's right. I mean, their relationship is one of the really interesting ones. I'm glad you've... Um uh, you've given some more detail about that because they actually were more than just editor and author at one point anyway. And it's a little hard to discover whether she was doing this from an editor's point of view, realising the, the potential of this novel, but also having an affinity with Xavier, which was really quite interesting given that she was uh, virtually a kind of doyen of society and uh, the cultural life of Sydney. And Xavier Herbert was this grizzled, misanthropic, uh, working-class author. If you've just joined us and you're wondering what we're talking about, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to author Craig Munro about his book, Literary Lion Tamers, book editors who made publishing history. Uh, Craig Munro, uh, you were yourself an editor and I did wonder at, um, you know, it is something that I feel very passionately about is really promoting the work that is done behind the scenes and uh, I'm assuming that that is kind of the reason that you embarked upon this, but was there anything that you discovered about um, some of the editors that you covered? Uh, Roseanne Fitzgibbon is one that that you sort of came up with uh, and you talk about um, her work in supporting the careers of others. Yes, that's right. Well, I I work very closely with Roseanne and, in fact, I was UQP's first fiction editor in the 1970s and then in the 1980s that role was taken over by Darcy Randall, uh, who now works at the University of Texas, she was a very fine fiction editor. And then in the 90s, uh, Rosie Fitzgibbon was fiction editor. And it's interesting to see the the different styles of uh, the UQP fiction editors and very much the personalities uh, involved. Yeah, it's uh, I, you do talk at the start of your book about the research that you did. Actually, kind of falling asleep in the library. I think it was the ref, uh, the Friar Library of Australian Manuscripts and First Editions. I'm I'm really interested in how you went about researching this because you do. Uh, what I love about this book is that you do expose some of that um, work that goes into creating this. So you are sort of not pretend, not using some kind of uh, sleight of hand entirely. You're or you're talking about how you've discovered some of these things. Can you talk about how one would embark upon uh, a creation of this sort and, and finding these primary sources? Yes, that's that's the key to this kind of research and winkling out the, the stories uh, because Australia's book publishing history is a real treasure trove. And in that sense, my book is uh, a journey where I not only was looking for the sort of background to Australian um, literature, but also 
looking out for the good stories. And it's, it's quite amazing how one letter in a collection, a huge collection like uh, P.R. Stevenson's collection is 60 boxes of <laughs> letters and documents uh, in the Mitchell Library in, in Sydney. And I spent three months and nearly had a nervous breakdown working about 10 hours a day going through all those all those boxes and it was extraordinary how many interesting and revealing letters I found there. I think you you mentioned that um, Stevenson's relative had actually considered trashing a lot of those boxes and you said you actually wished that they had <laughs> um, while you were trying to go through them all because it was driving you so crazy. That's that's right. Uh, that was uh, his his wife Winifred, who was always in. She was actually fourteen years older than he was, but she only admitted to being seven. And her son uh, Stevenson's stepson told me that uh, she changed her birthday just in case he would. Um, investigate in the births, deaths and marriages um, department and find out that she was actually a lot older than she was um, admitting to. She just celebrated it a few days later. <laughs> nice. Um, it's Look, it's filled with stories like this, this book, and, and what I thought, because when, really, when I embarked upon reading it, I expected it to be a sort of similar, you know, heavy on the correspondence between author and um, and editor and really focusing on those those kind of uh, moments where you sort of pull the curtain back and see that actually this whole idea we have that the person whose name is on the cover is the only person working away on a book. And certainly there are elements of this, but I am incredibly interested in the fact that you've chosen to really show the life. Uh, so you're trying to give a sense of the sort of, you know, of these people as characters, not just as editors. Was that a decision that you made early on or was that something that was evolving from these absolutely mad stories that you were finding? Hello, are you there? Hello. Oh, yes, I've still got you. Sorry, you were saying? Looks like we're having a little bit of difficulty there. Uh, I might just uh, see if we can go to a track. Uh, I'm going to play you. Uh, hello. Oh, I'm hello. Back again. Oh, you're back. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's continue yeah. with the interview. I'm not sure if you if you caught uh, that last question or not, Craig. Yes. Yes, I I did. I was just uh, going to say that there's a myth about the sort of romantic genius of the author working alone in a garret. Um, and in fact, that was partly the case with Xavier Herbert, who actually wrote Capricornia um, in a garret. His, his partner, Sadie, had read the first draft of it and said, this is no good, you've got to uh, rewrite it. So he he did lock himself in the garret and and worked with a pencil sometimes 18 or 20 hours at a stretch. Um, but it 
it it it really is, and this was something in in my own experience of of publishing. There's a whole before a a manuscript actually gets to a publishing editor. There's a whole kind of background where authors and their friends and partners discuss, read drafts, um, and these days they're called writing buddies. So two sort of novelists might get together and, and send chapters to each other. And uh, so it's a multi-stage process. Yeah, you do see like a lot of, uh, you know, writers groups or as you say, writer buddies um, will do a lot of that early spade work of helping people to kind of redirect their writing or doing that, what we would think of as a developmental edit uh, before it even gets to a publishing house. I guess it's it's sort of almost a, a loose um, formalisation of what was already happening with one's friends and partners um, behind the scenes. I, I love though, I always go like many... Um, people who've worked in publishing, I always turn to the acknowledgements page first <laughs> when I go through uh, yes. a book just to see uh, who has really helped uh, with the process um, because, you know, a good a good author will always thank those uh, involved, but it's not something that maybe the general public is necessarily aware of. This is, I'm going to ask you something, uh, Craig, that, that may be a, yeah. a controversial question. I've actually been thinking that it might be a really good thing for us to start to consider whether there should just be be one name on the cover. What are your thoughts on that? Well, a, a publisher recently in the US uh, listed at the back of the book, almost in the style of film credits, everyone who'd had anything to do with the uh, writing and the production of the book, and and even the marketing and publicity of it. And I was actually uh, talking to. Um, Michael Haywood, the publisher of text, at a Miles Franklin event in Sydney. And I was talking to him about this, and his view is that editors really should be seen and not heard and, and certainly not acknowledged. Um, and when I was starting out in publishing, the rule was that if you were mentioned in the acknowledgements, you had to cut it out. Really? Yes. <laughs> That's kind of shocking because, I mean, let's be honest, the, the remuneration isn't exactly going to cover you in, um, in all that you need, is it? So why not have an acknowledgement? What, what are your thoughts now? Do you think that that's somewhere that we should, should move more? I'm also thinking about things like uh, sensitivity reading, which is increasingly happening to make sure that when people, uh, you know, characterise someone who is of a different culture or race or um, experience of life, uh, that they are, you know, actually making sure that they're doing that in a way that is not just culturally sensitive, but correct and um, and appropriate. Yeah. But but That's again, right. that is work that is often paid for. But I but should that also be something that is subject to a to a um, you know it is often acknowledged, but a much more central acknowledgement. Yes, I I think so. Uh, I've I haven't worked in publishing now for about fifteen years, so. That uh, sensitivity readers uh, phenomenon has has really only come about in the last probably ten or twelve years, uh, but it, it is quite a team of of people. It's not quite as many as uh, 
work on a film where the credits roll for about three or four minutes. But I, I think there's a role for the publisher to take the initiative here. And I, I would quite like to see, uh, in addition to the acknowledgements that every author usually makes, except in novels, of course, uh, because the cover designer and the source of the artwork and so on, that's all acknowledged. Uh, but the role of editors uh, is not, and I think that really needs to be changed. Mm. And also I think this uh, this kind of idea, I mean, in some ways not acknowledging someone's existence devalues it to a certain extent that um, that maybe it's easier to think that you don't need them. Um, I've certainly, and, and this is a theory that I've been developing and I'm wondering if you share it, uh, you see authors that become extremely famous and suddenly the quality of their books take a nosedive or they're putting out these these kind of over-bloated tomes and uh, I've got, you know, many people I know agree with me that it's like they're too big to edit. Um, so they've got a little bit too much power in that scenario where they're saying, actually, don't I don't want to cut out this thing that probably should be. Um, so it's kind of not acknowledging that in the past the, the reason that their books were so tight or so, so well received was because it was so well edited. That's right. The most famous example is the American writer Raymond Carver, whose short stories came to prominence uh, fairly early in his career. And his style's very spare, uh, almost Hemingway-esque, and it was only really a few years before Carver died that the uh, manuscripts of these stories were made available, and it was clear that the editor, Gordon Lish, who'd obviously hung on to these manuscripts, yes. he had absolutely rewritten the stories and given them a whole new style, which in fact proved to be enormously uh, successful. Was there some suggestion as well that the unedited versions were slated to be published, but it was causing a great deal of horror? I, th I think the uh, original ver versions have been published they have been. To, uh, to some degree, yes. Yeah, the quite wordy versions. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? A style that is so synonymous with a, an author um, has actually been created by an editor. That That is certainly an extraordinary example uh, well, from right. history. And, and also, yes, and, and also my uh, editors, Julia Calamagno and Kevin O'Brien, they work closely with me. I mean, I, I'd never written a memoir before. Uh, I wrote Undercover. Uh, about my publishing career. And Julia, it was like a master's course in memoir writing. She really steered me in, in that path. And uh, with this book, Literary Lion Tamers, uh, Kevin also really, he asked me, he said, I really like some of the anecdotes and stories of how you uh, discovered uh, this material and who you spoke to and what you did. And so I, I actually made fairly significant revisions as a result of that advice. So I, I guess I'm an, an example of 
how important the role of editors is. Well, that's a perfect place to leave it uh, with your acknowledgement of your editors, Craig, uh, which I think is just great. Um, Thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory. My pleasure. That was uh, author Craig Munro, a former editor, uh, who wrote Literary Lion Tamers, book editors who made publishing history, which is out now through Scribe. Soon, though, we are going to be uh, talking to Kate Tormey, uh, the CEO of the State Library of Victoria, as the library turns 165 this year, a place where many writers, much like Craig has, uh, research their own books. Uh, So we're going to be discussing the past uh, of the library as well as its post-pandemic future. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Now, the State Library of Victoria turns 165 this year, making it this country's oldest public library, a place where, despite its grand edifice, people who lack the money to gather books could have access to all a library provides. Providing support, education and access is still the library's mission and I'm joined today by CEO Kate Tawney to discuss the library's long history and where it's heading in a post-pandemic world. Kate, welcome to Backstory. Hi, Mel. Thanks so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to talk to you, and it's really uh, great to talk to you off the back of that interview with uh, Craig Munro. His, uh, his book required enormous amounts of research, and institutions like the State Library are very definitely making that kind of thing possible for authors. Can you talk a little bit about how that kind of that side of things operates at the State Library? Yeah, absolutely. And and I can recommend Craig's book. It's absolutely fantastic. But that is a really good example of, um, you know, our, our collection. The library building is extraordinary and beautiful and it's redeveloped and we have amazing spaces. But at the heart of the library is our collection. And it is about books, but it's about much more than that as well. So in our collection, we have manuscripts, we have diaries, we have political ephemera. The other day I was down in the collection looking at an amazing collection of political badges that we've collected over years and years. We have letters. We have all sorts of things that give you a sense of Victoria. And, you know, it's 165 years old, that collection, and I I guarantee that, you know, there is something for everyone in that collection. And so many authors draw on on the the items in the collection to to give them a sense of a, a time in history history or, or just to really inspire their imagination. Um, recently I was, I was re- reading an extraordinary diary from a woman who was the wife of um, a pastoralist um, in the 1850s and you know we don't hear a lot about these extraordinary women who were the backbone of, of regional Victoria at that time and so it's, it's those stories within stories that the library collection has and inspires so many of our, our wonderful authors. People might not realise that the State Library keeps copies of just about everything that's published as well. So now, obviously, digital collections might be more common, but it's a huge thing that, uh, that, that the library does. 
Yeah, no, look, it's it's so true. And so we, we have a legal deposit, which means that everything published in Victoria, we keep a copy of that. And, you know, it's from newsletters through to books, etc. So the collection is really quite extraordinary. But we also, um, we also have collections of, of people's individual papers and diaries and ephemera. Um, so, so it really is a treasure trove. And, and we're encouraged people to come and discover it and, and it's lovely in a way Mel too because you know you can have it, it, it's really rich and it's it's really valuable for authors who have a particular and focused um, piece of work that they're doing but I really love the daydreaming element of it as well you know you go down a rabbit hole and you never imagined that you were going to find this particular item or you go and search for something that will take you to something else and it's just that's just there's such a joy in that and I think we undervalue how wonderful that is, you know, that kind of um, curiosity and that serendipitous sort of discovery. It's it's sort of a really interesting time, uh, and I do want to talk about where the library is headed, but just casting ourselves back into the past, it's very easy to think in our world where we have access to, you know, the internet and huge quantities of information, some of it very variable in terms of fa- <laughs> fact-based nature, but that's a whole scary other story that we are all living through. Um, but the thing is, in the past, libraries were traditionally owned by extremely rich people who yes. managed to amass these extremely expensive things, books, that were the repositories of knowledge. And so education and access to books was really just something that the rich could have. And so public libraries were was a radical kind of concept in the first place. Um, can you talk about how something as huge as the State Library gets invested uh, to support everyday people? Uh, Mel, that is just such an important point. And I think, you know, with the 165th birthday, we're actually celebrating the vision that, our, you know, the, the founders of the library had because you're totally right. Like, 165 years ago, most libraries were private libraries. And if you were lucky enough to invite it, be invited in, that was great, but most people weren't. And what I love about the, the story of the founding of the library is that the, the uh, foundation stone was laid on the same day by the same people as Melbourne University. And one was a structured education centre and the other was open to absolutely everyone. And the only uh, rule they had was that you had to have a clean hands, that anyone over the age of 14 could walk in. And the whole principle was that everybody should have access to knowledge and and we were we we were one of the first free libraries in the world and i think i think you know as, as victorians we need to kind of celebrate that that's quite extraordinary and so i think we've held on to that and we're very proud of that but over 165 years that's absolutely remained at the heart of what we do free access to knowledge and a place where we celebrate curiosity and where ideas are freely uh, debated in a in a really um, productive way so let's talk about that because we've just acknowledged that obviously we're living in a very different time. Obviously, uh, people can access other forms, even things like, for example, Trove uh, is out yep. there now that, that uh, is a repository of many old newspapers. That used to just be something you'd go to the library and read on something called microfiche, like tiny film slides. Um, but that's all these days are long gone. So what 
does the library do now? Particularly, you know, obviously there's been a different situation going on during the pandemic when we couldn't front up in person. But in a kind of post-pandemic world, what can a library do for the community? Well, look, Mel. Actually, I'll take you. I take you back prior to the uh, pandemic. Uh, pandemic, and you know, I reckon twenty years ago there was huge debate about whether libraries would would even survive. You know, that kind of digital age because everything was you know going to be online, and there was more information at your fingertips than you could ever imagine consuming. And yes, you know, when I joined the library five years ago. Um, you could not get a seat in this place. You know, if you came in sort of after 11 o'clock, um, the most complaints that I got were around people saying, I can't find anywhere to sit. Now, that is so interesting to me because I think that about not only space, it's about trusted information. It is about access to experts and trusted experts who are solely invested in factual evidence-based knowledge and I think it's also about space and community building. So, you know, prior to closing um, as a result of COVID, we had 5,000 people in this place every single day. Now, in a digital age, I think that is absolutely extraordinary and fantastic because there's a commonality around that. It is about all those things I've spoken spoken about. So post-pandemic, I think it's, it's going to be even more important to have safe places where people feel welcome. We, there is no barrier to entry. We don't ask anyone why they're here. Everyone comes in equal and, and we don't mind what you're doing. You can be daydreaming, you can be writing your PhD, you can be admiring the architecture, but the important part of this is that you feel like welcome in a library community and that when you're here, we're inspiring a sense of curiosity and knowledge. And I think post-pandemic, that is so, so important. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to State Library of Victoria CEO Kate Tawney about the library's 165th anniversary. I've just learned it was one of the first public libraries, not just in this country, but in fact the world, which is extraordinary, uh, and continues to support uh, Victorians in making sure they have access to genuine knowledge as opposed to the kind that the uh, former President of the United States liked to throw about many others on the internet um so look i i do want to kind of leave this conversation with uh, are there any things people can kind of look forward to that will bring them to the library obviously with all the covid safe precautions that you have um or that you would recommend if they want to use say any of the online collections which you do have available yeah, absolutely. Look, we're welcoming people back to the library now and, of course, within the COVID safe plan. We've got library on the lawn at the moment. Of course, we have that beautiful, beautiful forecourt and so we're encouraging people to come and enjoy, um, you know, the last days of summer on the forecourt with lots of um, uh, lots of shade and seating and some programming as well, coffee carts. We've got a festival weekend this weekend for kids, so come come and visit. Um, the other important thing is we've, we launched just before the closure... Uh, uh, of the library for COVID, um, a place called Start Space, which is really to encourage um, early entrepreneurs and those people who, and particularly creative people, who have just a niggling idea 
um, about something that they would like to create, start and build. And, but, but don't necessarily see themselves as comfortable in a co-working space or one of the many incubator, uh, incubator uh, spaces in universities. This is very much a community of like-minded people within the library and it's called Start Space. So please, if any of you have sort of a, just, it, just even the seed of an idea that you'd like to explore, our team is there to help you do that and to really support you in doing that. And we've got a fantastic children's space, the Pauline Gandal children's space that, uh, that opened in 2019 and we're activating those spaces. And of course the Vision 2020 redevelopment um, opened up a number of gorgeous heritage spaces that have been closed for decades. So come in and have a look. But importantly also, for those who can't get in, um, we turbocharged our digital offering uh, in 2020 and that continues this year. So if you can't come into the building, jump onto our website because there's so much to offer. That's really great. And that website is slv.vic.gov.au, I believe. That's, That's great. Right. Awesome. Yep. <laughs> yes. Um, hop on. You can have a look at, at all of the stuff that Kate's just mentioned in terms of what's coming up. Um, and if you want to hop along to some of the COVID safe um, stuff that's happening. But I do look forward to look. It's always was always one of my um, favourite things to do to just uh, hang out in the State Library and read a book. Total uh, surprise, I'm sure, to everyone here that that would have been something <laughs> I did. Um, but look, uh, I'm sure there's plenty more we could talk about, Kate. Um, such a pleasure to have you on today. Thanks, Mel. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That was uh, State Library of Victoria CEO Kate Tawney, who was talking about the library's 165th birthday, oldest or one of the oldest public libraries in the world. Um, and also what's on now um, at the library. You can go to slv.vic.gov.au for more details. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.